My pleasure to introduce today's program, which is Corporate Real Estate Executives' Lessons Learned, Tales from the Trenches. This is an annual uh, event that we hold, and it's always a good one. We get uh, gather some experienced senior real estate uh, executives to talk about issues or projects that have been front and center in their world for the last 18 to 24 months and how they've dealt with them, the obstacles they've dealt with, how they've overcome those obstacles, and, and lessons learned. And I think based on what we've heard in preparation for this, this program, uh, everyone in this room should walk away with something that will be of value as you go back to your places of work. I'll just introduce the panel briefly and then our moderator. Deborah Quo is the Director of Real Estate for Exelon Corporation. Exelon is one of the nation's largest electric utilities, uh, serving a, over 5 million customers in their trade area. Uh, it's about a $16 billion company. Is that right, Deb? Do I have that? It goes up and down. Okay. <laughs> Uh, but we're delighted to have Deborah. She'll be talking about uh, a project that was very relevant here in Chicago and uh, corporate relocation that they did recently. All the way from Indianapolis, Indiana, to Deborah's right is Steve Van Zulen. Steve is the manager of real estate and facilities planning for Eli Lilly and Company. Uh, Lilly is a 130-year-old pharmaceutical manufacturer uh, with revenues of approximately $16 billion. They were founded and still headquartered in Indianapolis. Uh, we appreciate Steve uh, taking the, the trip here today. And um, he will be talking to us about something that's been very much part of our conversation this year, which is raising the profile and the, and the strategic approach of real estate within the organization. Bill, Bill Alexander, to Steve's right, is Director of Global Real Estate for Tyco International. Tyco is a widely diversified conglomerate with uh, 2006 revenues of $41 billion. Uh, Bill will explain to you why that number has changed recently. But uh, the company's headquartered in Princeton, New Jersey, and Bill has some very interesting stories to tell you about uh, living through a, a rather public <laughs> and, and uh, controversial time and dealing with a massive portfolio, you know, thousands of locations. So a great panel. And it's now my pleasure to introduce our moderator for today's event, uh, Chris Wood. Chris, to my right, is the Managing Director and Senior Vice President of uh, UGL Equus here in Chicago. He's a leader of their Transaction Advisory Services Group. In Chris's 17-year career, he's been involved in transactions totaling over $1.7 billion. Um, most recently, or one of the more prominent deals here in Chicago was his involvement with the uh, USG corporate headquarters relocation, a 325,000-square-foot move, uh, for which uh, Chris was recognized as Broker of the Year, and also the uh, transaction won the NAIOP uh, office Transaction of the Year Award. Prior to joining Equus, Chris was with uh, a now-defunct company, believe it or not, Equity Office Properties, uh, leasing for, uh, heading Vice President of Leasing for the uh, Midwest uh, United States, uh, where he's also an award-winning producer, having uh, being recognized for, for his transactions uh, in 1996 and 1997, which were uh, Transactions of the Year for Equity Office. Chris continues to work with uh, major clients as the leader or co-leader of National Portfolio Strategy, USG Corporation, uh, Cox Enterprises, Navigant Consulting, and extending our Indiana connection. Chris is a graduate of the of, uh, IU, Indiana University. So without further ado, I will turn it over to Chris. Thanks, Brian. Uh, it's great to be here uh, and see so many friends and familiar faces. I, I love this topic. And... Uh, Brian, by the way, I've got to remind you to remind myself to bring you to my next meeting. That was a great introduction, so thanks very much. Um, <laughs> lessons learned, tales from the trenches. Um, I, I love that topic because as I look at the room today, 
everybody I see and recognize is involved in executing real estate projects on behalf of either clients or their own organizations. The other reason I'm really excited about this is the panel. We've got an incredible panel of experts here uh, to share insights and some of the secret sauce that they use uh, as they get strategy and projects implemented inside their own organizations. I want to add a little bit of detail to our panelists from a bio perspective, and then I'll talk a little bit about the protocol for the um, meeting this afternoon. Uh, Brian's already introduced Deborah, but Deborah uh, has the title of Director of Real Estate. Uh, she's responsible for portfolio strategy, asset transactions, management, lease records administration, occupancy management, property management, and property tax management management services for Exelon and its operating companies. Um, she took her BA at U of I and her master's from Kellogg and is a certified CCIM. Uh, Steve is from Indianapolis where just yesterday I was reminded yet again um, by an associate in Indianapolis that you guys won the Super Bowl. And we yeah, didn't. we did. <laughs> and all I could think of is just another five months, just another five months. Um, but Steve is um, Director of Real Estate and Facilities Planning for Eli Lilly in Indianapolis, responsible for global real estate transactions as, site, as well as site planning, facility planning. He's been in the uh, commercial real estate arena for 20 years, took his BA uh, in finance from U of I, as well as a uh, Juris Doctorate from Indiana University. And then we've got Bill Alexander, who's the Director of Global Real Estate for Tyco, uh, little old Tyco. $41 billion company, 3,000 locations, 100 million square feet. He's been in the real estate industry for 15 years, has his MCR um, through NACOR, and took his bachelor in economics from Northern Illinois, uh, and is completing his master's at DePaul University. He's also a Six Sigma black belt. Um, so we've got a great, great, great panel of experts here. I'm really excited to hear more of their details. Um, the way we thought we'd go through this, because we really want to engage you in conversations and Q&A, is we'll start with Deb, then go to Steve, then go to Bill. Each one will give their overview of their topic, and then we'd open that up to questions from the floor. So we make sure that we're getting you the information and idea exchange that you're looking for. That's why you're here. Um, We'll also then at the end of, say, an hour, uh, have kind of a wrap-up Q&A session to make sure that if anything's come to mind and you weren't able to get that out on the table, uh, we address it. But with that, I think uh, I'd like to start with Deborah. Uh, and are you going to stay there? Would you like to come up here? I'm going to try to talk here. Does this work? Can yes? you hear it? Okay. Great. Um, actually, let me move this over. I guess my first question that I usually try to lead off with is everyone says Exelon, but nobody really knows who Exelon is. Um, is there a show of hands with people who know who Exelon is here? Excellent. Wow. <laughs> you guys have done your homework. Good. Then I don't have to go into the explanation of what we do and, and who, we, uh, who we own in terms of ComEd and Pico, who are the uh, utility companies here in Chicago and in Philadelphia. What I'm going to talk about is really more... Um, specific to a project, because I, I know that Steve and Bill are going to talk more strategically in terms of some of the broader initiatives that they've dealt with um, at the portfolio level. What Exelon has done over the past couple of years, and what we're really very pleased 
to have accomplished um, and were recognized in April was that our headquarters here in Chicago at Chase Tower was recognized as the world's largest U.S. Green Building Council lead platinum project, um, which is definitely an accomplishment when you consider that, you know, three years ago, four years ago, when we started down the path of the headquarters, lead was really pretty much in its infancy as it relates to the program that we um, came under. And the fact that at 255,000 square feet, we are considered the world's largest. We think that, you know, hopefully we've set the bar very high for many of our peers to hopefully, um, you know, at least meet, if not surpass. And I know that there are many companies out there that are working on their own initiatives to um, incorporate environmental sustainability into their into their facilities and into the way that they kind of manage the workplace for their employees. So with that, the first page um, just kind of lays out some of the, the background in terms of the headquarters project. The um, headquarters consolidation was actually part of a portfolio strategy that we had set out in 2003. So just to give you a little bit of you know, insight into a large corporation and a portfolio strategy, you know, things that we do uh, absolutely take a lot of time. Um, they impact a lot of people, and there's a lot of considerations that we go through before we actually make the decision to go forward with something. 2003 is when we started this in terms of portfolio strategy initiative. We didn't actually move into this space until the end of 2006. So that does give you an indication that it's, you know, it was almost a three-and-a-half-year effort. Um, we actually started down the path in 2004, and one of the things that we had the benefit of and we continue to have the benefit of is our executive um, sponsorship. The uh, chairman of Exelon, John Rowe, has always been a very strong proponent of environmental sustainability. And one of the things that he... Um, put out there at the very, very beginning of the headquarters consolidation, as it was called at the time, was that whatever we do, we want to make sure that we are doing something that is going to have a positive impact on our environment. And, you know, by environment, it's, it's both, you know, the environment that we typically associate with, the air, the water, um, land, but also the environment that our employees occupy. And, of course, that also impacts how we design our space. So in terms of, you know, the things that we started out with, it was really initially an initiative to just take a whole bunch of locations that we had in downtown Chicago and bring them into one location. There were a lot of benefits for that in terms of productivity, in terms of reducing rental costs, occupancy costs, um, facilities costs, getting our people together so that they could be more productive. I mean, it's a lot of the, the things that you normally tend to think about. Um, and then adding on the complexity of the um, environmental aspect was something that I don't think anybody really expected initially, but certainly once we got the, um, the push to go down that path, there was quite a bit of activity to get ourselves ramped up and educated very quickly. RJ mentioned Green Build, which is a conference that the U.S. Green Building Council sponsors. And I can remember in 2004, as I was trying to figure out what being green meant, um, I went to the Green Build conference in Oregon, Portland. And I think at the time, and if there's anybody here that knows better, definitely correct me, but they were very excited that there was you know, 3,000 people showing up to Green Build at that time um, because to them it meant that the environment was becoming more mainstream. People's recognition that you know we do impact what happens in the environment and our future is very important. Um, you know that was definitely the big theme that I got out of that. In addition to just learning about what it takes to be environmentally um, sustainable in terms of how we use and build our space. I think this year in November it is going to be in Chicago. It's actually going to be at McCormick. Um, and Exelon is actually going to feature its headquarters in that um, conference as well. So if you do get to participate, you may get to uh, also see the headquarters. 
But I believe that they're expecting either 10,000 or 17,000, some really, really huge number. I mean, multiples of what we had, you know, three years ago. So just the momentum, I think, that you're seeing, you can't open a magazine, you know, or a newspaper these days without hearing something about, you know, greenhouse gas and our carbon footprint. And really, I just, I'm not the, um, the environmental expert here, but I think in terms of what we did, there's, there's a lot of things that I can talk about that I'm not going to talk about today, at least. The, um, the things that I did want to touch on while I'm still on this page is that as we were kind of going down the path of the new headquarters, we went through the typical process. We looked at a whole bunch of locations. Um, John Rowe actually joined us on several of our property tours. And ultimately, we did look at um, two options, developing a new building or staying within an existing building. Um, you don't think about this, again, from an environmental perspective, but if you are building a new building, and all the developers here are going to hate me as well as the mm. architects <laughs> and the construction companies, but if you're building a new building, typically you're tearing down something that exists. And when you tear down that building that exists, what are you creating? You're creating a whole bunch of trash um, that has to get ported off to some kind of landfill. And we all know that you know landfills are in very short supply these days. And so that was actually a very conscious decision that, that we, Exxon and John Rowe, also made in terms of saying, you know what, it would be great to go into a brand new building, but we're just not going to um, contribute to that in terms of the environmental aspect of it. So we ended up looking at buildings that um, are in the Chicago Loop, and of course we ended up at Chase Tower, which is the old Bank One Plaza. Um, we were fortunate in that Chase, the owner and the landlord there at the time, was undergoing a very significant building infrastructure program as well. Otherwise, a lot of the things that we had to go through for LEED um, would have probably been a little bit more difficult for us. So I do need to give credit to our landlord in, in that particular instance. Um, as we were going down the path of the new headquarters, just a couple of things that I'll touch on real quickly, and certainly you know, there's a lot that you can have a conversation around, but um, in 2004, we also announced late in the year that we were going to initiate a merger and or acquisition, a merger with PSEG, which is a utility company in New Jersey. Um, and at that time, we had completed all of the programming of the space. So we knew that we were going to need to accommodate, I want to say 800 employees in our new headquarters. We had already kind of gotten to the point where we, were, we had negotiated the deal and we were ready to go. Um, once the merger was announced, that was one of those indicators that, you know what, we're going to consolidate all our headquarters functions further in Chicago. And by the way, we need to add, you know, 200, 300 people um, to our headquarters space. So that caused a lot of um, not necessarily consternation, but you know it does make you realize that you can't really run a project thinking that you have the end goal in mind, even though there is an end goal, obviously with a schedule and a budget and a time associated with it. The other thing that we had going on, and this was more in um, 2005 and then, of course, 2006, and finally got settled here in 2007, is the uh, regulatory impact that we were feeling with ComEd which is the um, utility that I think you guys are all familiar with here in Chicago, and some of the rate case um, issues that um, I think were being settled and negotiated in Springfield. With that, some of the business assumptions that we had made with regards to our headquarters had to be changed. And so ComEd, as, a, um, as an excellent company, for a variety of reasons, um, 
needed to be physically separated. They had originally been included in the headquarters footprint. We had to pull them out. So, you know, during the whole time that we were going through this project, we had a whole bunch of things kind of impacting who was going to be where and how much space we ultimately needed. You know, at the end of the day, we ended up sticking with what we had in terms of the 10 floors. Um, and keeping the number of seats that we had originally projected. And if you kept up with the news, um, we actually called off the merger with PSE&G. Um, I can't even remember now if it was early this year or late last year. It was late last year. So, you know, again, you're kind of going down a path of building space with certain assumptions and those assumptions not kind of coming through, but needing to make sure that you stay on schedule and on budget. Um, the other things that we had going on, again, you know, all similar were not only just the real estate and the capital market dynamics, but we were restructuring. So we had restructured as we had gone through the initial um, definition of the headquarters. With the, with the pending merger, we went through another reorganization. When the merger was called off, we went through yet another reorganization and restructuring. So again, if you're kind of thinking about the executives that you're working with and working for and trying to accommodate, as well as their staff, it's a constantly moving target. I mean, you just don't know if you need to accommodate, you know, five vice presidents or 50 vice presidents. Um, and being able to kind of develop a floor plan and a program that can be flexible with that was one of the key things that we tried to incorporate into our space, you know, notwithstanding the environmental aspects of it. I'll go to page two or the next page, but really what I just wanted to kind of give you a little bit more insight into the space before I touch on these things is... Um, the headquarters space, as I mentioned, is 10 floors. It's 255,000 square feet. It's within a building that was built in the 1960s. And one of the things that you know we wanted to do here was take the opportunity to really kind of change the way that our employees um, viewed their workspace and that the public views us. You know, I think if you had any. Um, benefit, I guess, of seeing our space prior to us moving into the new um, new location. There really was no kind of image. There was no consistency. Um, it was space that had been cobbled together kind of over time. And so what we did with the uh, Chase headquarters is took the opportunity to kind of turn things around. Um, we had the um, I guess the, the guidance of the lead checklist to kind of help us along here. And one of the things that I just like to share with people because I think it's, it's uh, one of the things that we struggled with the most, quite frankly, with our executives was the um, requirement to give, I believe it's 90% of the occupants a direct view of the outside from your chair, from sitting down. So it's not a matter of standing up and it's not a matter of you know walking out to an office. It's wherever you're sitting, you need to be able to look outside and see the blue sky or see that it's cloudy or see that it's raining. Um, to do that, you know, we had a very traditional layout of all the offices being on the perimeter and all of the workstations being inside. And so really the people that were doing the work um, never knew what was happening outside until they, you know, left at the end of the day. What we ended up changing in this case was bringing all of the offices into the core and putting all the workstations out on the uh, perimeter. And that was definitely a huge change, cultural change, change management exercise. Um, I don't think that we would have been successful in doing that, again, without John Rowe's um, support and sponsorship. So if nothing else, you need to make sure that you have your CEO's sponsorship on that. 
um, because he also has his office in the core. He doesn't have a window office. And so he is actually practicing what he's you know, preaching and what he's asked everyone else to do. I will say now we have had the, uh, the benefit of eight months, nine months in our space. We did conduct a uh, workplace survey to see how people felt about their space. And one of the questions, of course, was how do you feel about the new layout? Does it promote um, you know, productivity, collaboration, things like that? Um, and the overwhelming feedback is that everyone loves the view. And so it doesn't matter now where you sit. It doesn't matter where you are in the hierarchy of the organization. Everyone's got that view. The people that are in the offices do have glass fronts, so everyone can see what they're doing. And that absolutely was a change. But you know, at the end of the day, I think it's, um, it's a change that we went through that, that uh, has paid off. And it's a change that we would not have gone through without kind of the guidance of the um, lead program that we were trying to you know, make gold in initially and ended up with platinum. So in terms of what I have on this page, I mean, I don't really want to spend a whole lot of time because I know you guys have much more to talk about. <laughs> and I've already used up my 15 minutes. Um, so Plenty of time. Take, 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 <laughs> so I think the only thing that I'm going to really focus on, because you can all read, I'm assuming, is the bottom bullet point, <laughs> which is that, you know, no matter what, I mean, we had this project and, and I will tell you that it was a project that while I was leading, I had a team of very, very dedicated people, not only employees that were of Exelon, you know, that were Exelon employees, but also um, the various consultants, our designers, our general contractor, you know, our vendors, everything. Um, they were very committed to the, to the project and, of course, to making sure that it was successful. We managed this project um, in such a way that hopefully there wasn't, you know, any kind of skip in the beat of any particular activity that we're going through. And at the end of the day, you know, the entire project team got excellent kudos for pulling something off that, you know, for a company like Exelon, I mean, we had not done a headquarters project in 40 years. So it's not something that we do on a daily basis. It's not something that we do even in, you know, one person's career. And to have something like this go off as smoothly, smoothly as it did and also as successfully as it did I think it's something that, you know, not only is, as the project team leader am I very proud of, but I think just in generally, you know, you, you, you kind of need to think about that, whether you're the owner, the project manager, or the, um, you know, one of the service providers on a team. I mean, you just have to think about the fact that most companies don't go through major initiatives like this very frequently, and you really need to step up and, and just be uh, an active part of the team. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, everyone put in a ton of time, a ton of effort. I think there were a lot of people who were very close to burning out. So, you know, my biggest advice here is that no matter what you do, you got to take care of yourself. Um, because, you know, unfortunately, I think during our project, and there was nobody specific on the team, but during the course of the project, there were many people that I was aware of, and I shouldn't say many, several people that I was aware of that, you know, kind of pushed themselves to the end. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, they weren't of any value to the team or to their families or to their communities. So um, if nothing else, that's my biggest lesson learned. The uh, last page would be more specific to the sustainability components of the project. And really here, it's just to tell you that, you know, what we did is that we created a very attractive, very functional space um, using the highest green building standards. We did not do anything strange or unusual. There are no windmills on the building. There are no solar panels. I mean, truly, there is nothing strange or unusual or, you know, weird about the space. I mean, you come into it and it looks very normal um, in the sense of, you know, what normal is defined as. 
Um, we accomplished the renovations using commercially available high-performance products and technology. That is something that I think in terms of the curve of commercially commercial availability, we really benefited from. And I think anybody trying to do this now is going to benefit from even further. There is plenty of product out there that um, you know meets not only the lead requirements, but just in general um, contributes to you know any efforts that you have to reduce your carbon footprint. Um, the third point there is that we improved the building performance at a cost premium of less than 5%. And I think that's important, again, because when we started down this path and we said we wanted to get this silver, gold, platinum rating, you know, everyone came to us and said, okay, great, you want to do that? It's going to cost you 20% more. It's going to cost you 10%, 15% more. And we were just, you know, kind of puzzled at why people would automatically throw that number out. Um, so for us to be able to say that we did it for less than 5% is very important, and I want to make sure that everyone hears that message because it doesn't have to cost more to do a platinum um, commercial interiors project. Um, and based on the energy cost savings alone, we'll recover our premium in less than five years. So, you know, our target, I think, was to reduce energy consumption by 43% a year um, based on our latest, and of course, you know, it's subject to change, but based on our latest review, we've actually reduced our energy consumption by 50%. And as the energy company who both generates and delivers electricity, it's very important for us to be able to say that, you know, we are actively taking a part in um, being able to use energy efficiently in everything that we do. That's all I have. Deb, that, that's a uh, fabulous project and a great overview. Thank you very much. I'd uh, love to open it up to questions from the floor. Does anybody have a question that they'd like to ask Deb about this project? Please. Yeah. I think the um, the differential is that when we started, there was again, it's a very steep learning curve. If you've never done a lead project, then your your team is learning, and so unfortunately, you either pay for that learning or you don't. And one of the things that we tried to do, and I think we were very successful in, is we engaged a team that had established and demonstrated experience in doing lead projects already, so that they were not learning on our nickel essentially. Um, and as a result, I mean, you know, everyone brought a whole different level of expertise, a whole different level of knowledge. Um, we worked together very early on. I brought the design team and the general contractor, as well as the lighting consultant. I mean, you know, every component, every person that contributes to the environment um, together really in 2005, January of 2005. So they had the benefit of working together on the design um, from the very beginning altogether. It wasn't a matter of, you know, the designer kind of coming in and saying, here's the design, and then bringing in the general contractor six months later or eight months later and saying, well, wait a minute. You know, you want to build this and you want to be environmentally friendly, but you didn't design your space to be like that. So um, it really was bringing, I think, the right team together, the experienced team, um, and then bringing them together very, very early in the project. Were you uh, available? Were there any available incentives or credits for lead-related uh, initiatives that you were able to take advantage of? Um, there weren't any that I was aware of. The one thing that we did work with the city very closely on um, under Sadi Johnston is they have a green building permit program, 
and it, they were piloting it at the time. I believe now it's fully underway. So we did uh, work very closely with the city on that. Okay. Does anybody else have questions for Deb? Um, I'm not at liberty to share that. Nice try, though. That's a good question. <laughs> I wanted to know the same thing. Anybody else? Great job, Deb. Thanks so much for sharing that. Uh, with that, yeah. With that, we'll move to Steve uh, in the Lily story. You mind for Steve? Please. Good afternoon, and, and thanks for having me here today. I appreciate the opportunity to come and, and share some things with you. Something that, that Deb mentioned, I think, uh, was a cultural change that they had to undergo, and I think you'll find a consistent message between the three of us, that really when you get down to doing anything, one of your biggest obstacles is dealing with culture, and you'll find that as we, as we go through here. Um, as Brian mentioned and Chris both mentioned, we're based in Indianapolis, Indiana. This is our corporate tagline, Lily, well, <laughs> Brian. This is our corporate uh, tagline, Answers That Matter. Hopefully I'll give you some of those today. And now, Brian, the booing can begin. So, um, you know, I couldn't come to Chicago without bringing a picture. And I'm an Iowa grad, so Bob Sanders is an Iowa person, so that's uh, uh, something near and dear to my heart. But th this slide actually does have a purpose. Uh, albeit twofold. One's a score in the bottom, but the other one is, <laughs> is the fact that no matter what you're undertaking, when you start, you should start with big goals. And so these guys started with big goals, but Deb started with big goals. You know, Bill did as well. And you're not going to get to that ending and achieve those goals unless you have that out in front of you. So we can now move to uh, things that you might find less offensive here. This is our beginning. I hope our real estate today looks a little better than that. Um, but we have been in Indianapolis for 130 years. Uh, we went global in the 20s when we first went over to the UK and uh, have been global ever since. Um, our major products, in case you don't know, uh, we're one of the largest uh, manufacturers of insulin for diabetes care, uh, Zyprexa, and other forms of uh, medication for folks with uh, different types of uh, mental illness. And then we also uh, have Cialis, which you guys see those commercials during football games, I'm sure. Just go to the next slide here. There's a little bit of overview about our portfolio. Uh, we have about 27 million square feet. As you can see, uh, it's broken down between uh, outside and inside the U.S., uh, with about a third of it being outside. Um, we have responsibility for all units of the uh, organization, so manufacturing, research and development, corporate admin and sales and marketing. So that those numbers reflect all those different units uh, worldwide. Now I'm going to get in kind of the, the meat of what I'm going to talk about. There's really two strategic initiatives I'm going to discuss today and, and share a little bit with you. Uh, one is the Global Transaction Management Program. And this, is, uh, this was an interesting process uh, to go through. Um, and to implement because of the history that you just saw, 130 years. And up until a couple years ago, uh, the real estate department acted like a mail order house, or as I call it, a shoe department. People would come in and they'd say, hey, we need you know, something, and, and real estate would help them. Uh, just like when you go to the shoe store, you tell them what you want, 
they'll help you. But they're not out on the street shaking people, telling them they need new wingtips. Well, we wanted to change that paradigm because we had significant exposure from sites that weren't calling us. Most of that 9 million square feet that you saw in the OUS, most of that was not calling us. We had installations in Japan in excess of 100,000 square feet we knew nothing about. And so we needed to get a better handle on that as we transition into really a proactive management process. And so really how did we do that? What was our program implementation? Well, we really had to sit down and figure out what's the strategy and plan. And just to say we want to go out and get control of the global portfolio, it's not a real good story. People aren't going to get real excited about that. But we have to figure out what are we doing and quantify the exposure. And we quantified the exposure in terms of what we knew of dollars uh, and then compliance. Compliance is a big deal, obviously, for corporate America these days, as well as opportunity cost. You know, what could we be leaving on the table because we just don't have control of it? Then we decided we need to really create a framework. And what is that framework? And there are different methodologies. If you talk to folks with global portfolio, Bill probably has a, a different framework than we do. But if you talk to different folks, they set it up in different ways. And what we decided to do is follow one we developed for the U.S., but then also look at really the personality of our company and what does that mean. The personality of Eli Lilly Company is really a process-based, data-driven company. We have a process for finding new medical compounds. We have a process for getting those approved, process for manufacturing, and then a process for sales. So if we wanted to get any play at all, we had to show them a process and that it was based on data. So we developed a framework and a process to not only going to the service providers, but requiring them to show us how they would um, implement that process. Another key issue or, or facet of our program was to tie it to existing corporate policy. If you're going out trying to you know, pave a way and do something new and create a new corporate policy, it's a lot harder. But if you can you know, search your corporate policy handbooks, your corporate financial policy um, statements, you can leverage compliance through using those corporate policies that are in existence. Deb mentioned the need for uh, senior management buy-in up to the C-suite, and uh, that's, that's without a doubt probably the most important bullet point on this slide. So the first three things allowed us to make our pitch to the senior management group, which is basically our policy committee, which is all the, the uh, folks that sit up on the 12th floor uh, at our corporate headquarters. And we needed those folks to say, yes, this is important, this is worthwhile, and it's worthwhile enough that we're going to tell folks around the world that Van Zulen, they actually have to listen to you. And so that is a, is a key element. Then after we got that, we needed to communicate broadly and then implement. And communicated broadly um, included you know, broadcasting via email to all the leaders around the world, all the financial directors around the world, all the procurement folks, um, because the procurement folks that, you know, buy a lot of other things for the company I also believe that they can buy real estate and they're, they're two different things they're two different uh, activities and then finally once you go through kind of all those steps and you've got it and you've implemented it you need to share your successes broadly 
because the only way you're going to get back into the next transaction, into the next strategic discussion, is if you can show them value you've brought. And if all you can show them is that you showed up with a broker and you know you helped get the deal done, but you didn't have any value, um, you're not going to be around very long. And so the way we did that is, is a few few ways. One, we have an internal website, and on our internal website, we kind of have a you know a victory or a pat ourselves on the back page, you know why you should use us. Um, we have an engagement letter that we use internally to our uh, affiliates around the world. And in that engagement letter, it's kind of saying, here's what we expect of you, but here's what we've done in, this, in the past and what you should expect of us. And so here's some wins we've had, and hopefully we can have those for you as well. Then we also communicate to management our savings. And we calculate our savings in two ways. One is through actual savings. So if you know, somebody's paying 100000 before for their lease and we can go in and get it for them for fifty. Basically, apples to apples, that's an easy one to do. Um, we also show avoidance or opportunity cost. And so at the end of the year, we hit total, and hopefully folks agree with how we've come about that. But last year, our basically three-person group in real estate delivered about $38 million in actual and opportunity cost savings to the corporation, which um, was pretty significant compared to what we've been delivering before. Out of all that, it's not an easy path, you know. It didn't just start clicking, and there were a lot of lessons learned along the way, and some of them are, are listed here below, probably the top four. And one key one that we learned early on was one size does not fit all. And when you're in a, a company with a lot of different locations around the world, um, it, it's easy to say, well, gosh, this is what we did in France, and so we're going to Switzerland, we're going to do that, we're going to Belgium. but you have to kind of first step back and understand what's going on there and can I really add value? And one example was in Belgium, we were at a, a location in downtown Brussels for about 25, 30 years. And the gentleman that owns the building is about 85 years old. Their lease is not set to expire for a while and the financial director called me and said, hey Steve, we want to renew. Went, well, okay, but your lease doesn't expire until you know, two years from now. Why are we talking about it now? Well, the owner of the building called me, Steve, and he says he wants to renew you guys before, or renew us before he dies. And I said, well, that's a, that's a little different market twist than we're used to. But what we were able to do is say, okay, we can appreciate that. We like the relationship. And we just took a step back and quickly looked at the market to see what he was proposing, determined it was in line, negotiated a few things with him, and we got the deal done. He was satisfied. We were satisfied. Number two is probably the, um, the other thing that's, that's really key to making this work, and that's make the sites need you. And if they need you for something, whether it's money, which is usually a, a good thing they need you for, because uh, then they'll always call, or approvals and compliance, then they'll call you. And we've been successful at that, even when folks get out ahead of the curve and maybe we haven't gotten to them early enough. They come to us because their management is saying, hey, has real estate been involved? And when that question's asked, then they need us, and we need to then become involved. Uh, don't underestimate politics. And they're, they're very real everywhere, from, you know, the folks that are, uh, in accounting to the folks that are running your businesses around the world. And 
they will, folks will lobby, the people they think they can lobby, to try and influence you to get you out of the way. That's pretty much plain and simple. And you need to be confident um, in your delivery. And again, getting back to sharing successes and sharing the whys and sharing you know, the keys and, and why this should be done. That kind of leads to the next one, which is don't waver from the process even when the CEO questions. Um, a lot of times when you get an email from the CEO, uh, hairs on your neck stand up a little bit and you kind of think, oh gosh, what did I do or, or not do? And um, we had an example, we were in Germany and we were going out for a new office space, about 125,000 foot requirement. And it turns out our CEO is friends with the CEO of a large real estate developer with an international presence. It turns out this CEO was very disappointed that his company was not on our short list. Um, turns out he then told our CEO that he didn't think the process was fair. He thought we were playing up to uh, relationships that we already had. And there were several other bullet points in this email. And basically I was being questioned, you know, why aren't these guys involved and can they get involved? And it would have been easy to say, well, yeah, we can, we can let them back in. But we went back and said, well, here's why they're not involved. They didn't respond, okay? And here's how we did go through the process and then here's where we are. And I sent that back, you know, there's a 50-50 chance that I'll, you know, still be there the next day. Uh, <laughs> fortunately, he appreciated the process, and he said, thanks, I'll take this back to Mr. So-and-so and tell him that we did follow a process and it was a very logical, legitimate methodology. Um, and, and getting back to, to, I guess, part of the reason for the program, before we started this, we thought we had 165 locations around the world, and this gets to the compliance issue. Uh, after we implemented the program and started proactively managing this, we found we had 210. And some of them were quite significant. And so it just goes to show you that if you don't manage it and don't have it in control, uh, it quickly is out of control. The next uh, little project is really multiple projects. Um, and corporations make strategic decisions every day, right? And oftentimes in a real estate role, you are responsible for carrying out kind of the um, outfalls of those decisions. In uh, basically last year and most of this year, uh, Lily has made some diff difficult decisions to close sites, uh, specifically about five sites around the world. And Within Lilly, Lilly never has laid off anybody. Whenever we've had a group that we have determined is no longer necessary, those folks are all given the opportunity to go to other parts of the corporation and work. And so you may be an engineer one day, but if that you know, responsibility or function is gone, you can go work somewhere else. But these actually had layoffs. Um, we were selling sites, sites that we had been in for a long time. And it, there was a real uh, psychological impact as well as, as a real impact. Um, an example of this is our site in the UK. We bought the ground in the late 20s, built a factory there in the mid-30s. Um, the story goes that it's uh, outside of London that when the Germans were bombing London, 
sometimes they lined up on the Lilly building because they knew where that was and used that as kind of a, of a beacon to head towards London. And the CEO of Lilly at the time uh, even offered uh, Winston Churchill to tear down the building if he thought it would help you know, save London. And so you've got this kind of history and this very, you know, sense of pride around these locations. And so it's not just real estate disposition. It's a very psychological issue. The key to this, though, um, we found is we got to get engaged early on. Um, you can't come to the game late. And so you've got to get the seat of the table before the announcement's made, before the decision's made. And if you're successful on what we did on the last page, on transaction management, you will get the seat at the table. And you need to be able to provide input, provide evaluation and valuation uh, that are credible so that you can feed that decision and then when the decision's made, you get the handoff right away. Then once the uh, decision is made and you're sitting there with some real estate activities you gotta implement, you gotta drive the process once announced with quick action and team formation. And this is really key because Back to the UK example, um, if you don't get on it, the site has a lot of ownership of that site, the people on the site. And so if you're behind them, they'll take over. So you've got to hit the ground and be the person in charge. Now, that leads to the next bullet point. It doesn't say to keep the folks around the world out of the process. No, they're very integral to the process. Um, in fact, today we're signing a purchase agreement to sell that site in the UK. And I basically took myself out of the negotiations because I felt comfortable our site team could handle it a lot better given the cultural issues and the relationships issues that we've uh, developed with our buyer over the last couple of months. Um, so they are very, very important, but they also need to know that there is a corporate process and that at the end of the day, somebody's got to make the decision and hopefully that's the folks in the real estate uh, department. Uh, the other thing on this is to report progress. So we had five of these going on at once this year, and some of them are still going on, unfortunately. Um, but we got to report the progress. So we meet weekly via conference call, because most of these are outside the United States. And we report progress to management, to the site, um, and hold folks accountable to doing what they say they're going to do. And if you do that, then you'll also get a lot less resistance from folks uh, doubting uh, the process or the, or the project you're trying to get done. When we went out on these disposition um, projects, we tailored the transaction management process we had in place. So we didn't try and create something new just because it was a little bit different animal. We took what we had, and what we had was a best-in-class, best-in-market um, platform where we would go to the market, interview the best players, and um, Tim Sherwood's here from DTZ and his team uh, in Frankfurt is handling our Bad Hamburg uh, situation, but DTZ doesn't do all of our international work. We look to hire the best people in the market, which also helps gain your credibility. Uh, lessons learned from this activity, emotions and ownership are real, and not believing that can derail you. And that was very real here in the States. Uh, we announced that we were stopping construction on a uh, manufacturing project in Virginia and the emotions surrounding that were incredible from uh, the state, from the economic development people that I had been with a month before we announced it and they had no idea we were going to announce it. 
Um, so there were some very difficult, difficult conversations and phone calls. And if you gloss over that as just, well, that's a corporate decision, we're moving on, it, it can derail you for a long, long time. So as painful as it is to work through those issues and spend time and try and really understand what folks are thinking, um, if you don't, it can derail you. Um, the second one, I'm sure everybody has had a situation with this. Everybody has sold their home at the highest value on their block. Has anybody dealt with that within their own organization? Um, everybody has an opinion about real estate, right, wrong, or indifferent. And I had an executive director uh, in finance who was in charge of one of our divisions. Um, he was asking me about a transaction we just signed a contract on. I was going through the points. And up until the point where I told him they had a free look, basically, a 90-day due diligence look, things were going fine. Oh, that's great, Steve. That's great, Steve. And then he said, well, why, why do they get this free look? I said, well, that's you know, kind of the market. They've got to figure out if they want to buy our property, if it's everything we said it is. Well, then he related that back to his home and how he just bought a, bought a home 30 days ago, and he didn't think he had that opportunity. And, and so you've got to deal with those issues and understand that you know, you're going to get questioned. And the last one here, negotiation is not a good team sport. And it's a good team activity to brainstorm and build consensus on what the goals are of the organization or of the transaction, but it's not a good team sport to carry out with four people trying to negotiate with the other side. So it's good to get consensus as far as to what we need to do and how the financing and the, um, the transaction needs to occur, but somebody's got to be in charge and make the final call. So that's kind of the summary of dispositions and our transaction management strategy and a recap of the Super Bowl. Uh, <laughs> if anybody has any questions, I'd be happy to entertain them. Questions out there? Anybody have anything? <laughs> I'll have to remember that. <laughs> Steve, that was a great insight. Uh, and I was struck by the amount of thoughtfulness you put toward the internal sales process and proving value and adding value and making sure that everybody up and down the food chain understands what it is you guys are doing. So thanks for that. Uh, Bill? Uh, with Tyco, uh, are you going to dance around the, the floor, or where are you going to be? That's right. Well, you know. He's going mobile. Okay. Is it on? Here we go. All right. Now I get to sing a little Sinatra for you at Marjano's, right? <laughs> Luck be a lady too. No, sorry. <laughs> um, that's, I, I always did too. I had to, I had, to I had to get the opportunity. Um, as was mentioned earlier, I'm uh, Bill Alexander with uh, Tyco International, uh, which was described earlier as a Princeton, New Jersey-based organization. Just in case any of my IRS friends are in the room, I need to clarify that we are a Bermuda-based company <laughs> with operating headquarters in Princeton, New Jersey. So uh, get that little book of business uh, taken forward here. Right, slide. Uh, Tyco, for those of you who uh, don't know the, the financial history of the company, uh, fiscal revenues for 06 were $41 billion. That's made up of uh, four operating segments. The electronics business is a component 
uh, electronics manufacturing for the automotive, airline, consumer uh, electronics uh, industries. The fire and security business is fairly self-explanatory. It's fire safety, life uh, life support systems, uh, security uh, for home and, and business. Uh, the healthcare group does everything from uh, making drugs with Malincrot uh, pharmaceuticals to uh, surg surgical supplies and needles with U.S. Surgical, uh, right on down to uh, disposable pads and diapers for the hospital environment. So, uh, and lastly, the Engineered Products and Services group is a, is a broad range of companies. That's uh, uh, Tyco Flow Control, our, our valves group. Uh, Tyco Water does pipe. Uh, you would, a lot of Chicago folks know Allied Tube and Conduit is based out in Harvey. That's the uh, largest producer of uh, electronic pipe or uh, uh, metal piping in the U.S. Uh, slide. I've, you know, I don't follow directions well. They said, can you go back 18, 24 months and tell us what happened? And so I went back 15 years to give you a little history. Um, uh, Tyco grew uh, incredibly, uh, exponentially large from the period 92 to 02 through a very aggressive acquisition strategy. Uh, as you can see, in less than 10 years, they acquired 809 separate c corporate acquisitions. Um, uh, well, that strategy did not go to integration at, at any depth. A typical strategy of that acquisition was, you know, you buy the company as cheaply as possible. You fire the top three levels of management and call it integrated. That's, uh, you know, it was, it was a very aggressive strategy. Um, the, uh, excuse me, uh, a, a lot of legacy things come out of that. You know, uh, we... Uh, in order to keep the acquisition price down, we we didn't buy owned properties of some of the acquisitions. We leased them. And oftentimes we leased them from their former owners and former owners were retained as vice presidents. And, you know, we had a lot of very convoluted arrangements there. So uh, so the company was going great until uh, 2001, 2002, when it started to come out that our former CEO, uh, Dennis Kozlowski, who during the, the last year had done 200 acquisitions, earning him the nickname Deal-A-Day Dennis, um, started to come out that our, our CEO had some uh, uh, you know, unusual events in our, our, our financial practices, uh, the, 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 uh, the $2 million birthday party for his wife in Sardinia, the uh, $6,000 shower curtain, the $30,000 uh, umbrella stand for his New York apartment that the company bought for him, or you know, some of the ones that, that are... Uh, are most noted there. Uh, so he's, uh, him and uh, Mark Schwartz, our former CFO, have gone from the C-suite to the jail cell suite, uh, both doing eight and two-thirds to 25 years in New York's uh, state prison system. Uh, out of that, Tyco was very quickly grouped with Enron, WorldCom, Tyco. You know, anytime anybody talked corporate scandal, they talked governance issues, it was Enron World, you know, such as Enron, WorldCom, Tyco. And uh, that took a 40-ish dollar stock value down to seven bucks in uh, early July of uh, 02. Um, unlike Enron, unlike WorldCom, uh, underneath that scandal was a pretty sound company that produced a lot of cash, had a lot of good brands, had a lot of good, you know, good things going for it, a lot of good people working for it. Um, go to the next slide. Uh, 
at that time, we hired a new CEO, Ed Breen. Uh, you know, you want to talk about courage in the face of crisis in his first 60 days on the job. You know, brought on, brought on by the board of directors to resurrect Tyco. His first actions in that 60 days was to ask all of the current board who hired him to resign. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's some courage. Um, changes to every key operational leader in the company. I mean, virtually, every, well, actually, literally, everybody that reported to the CEO was new in, in 2003. Uh, oper operational excellence became a real key mantra of the company. Uh, operational excellence to Tyco is uh, Six Sigma programs, strategic sourcing programs, uh, corporate real estate and facility management, portfolio management, uh, working capital uh, also falls under that, uh, that group. Uh, the, out of that, you saw dramatic cash flow improvement almost immediately started Paying down debt, buying back stock—you know, good good things come. Uh, and as was essential coming out of that sort of scandal period, we went all the way to the other end of the extreme on corporate governance. Uh, Tyco is now ranked in the top two or three percent of companies for their corporate governance policies. Uh, to give you a little window of what it was like to work post scandal. Um, one dollar of unbudgeted capital expenditure at Tyco required the CFO of a $40 billion company's signature on a piece of paper. So a little, little bit of frame of reference there. Next, please. Uh, the, the last takeaway on the bottom of that slide, uh, just a little scale uh, as well. At the time, that's, you know, that's a concerted effort of more than 250,000 employees globally for Tyco. Uh, you know, post on the actions of two. That's uh, a lot of, lot of good people bringing that company back. Real estate transformation, and this was, you know, transformation is sort of the wrong word. It's real estate exploration. But nobody knew what we had. You know, you grow, you, you get 800 companies over that time period, and the only place that the, uh, the actual property information was held was at the company level. You know, it, was very, it was rolled up in Hyperion, but no specific property detail, no central lease repository, uh, you know, still finding occasional places along the lines of uh, Steve's stories. Uh, first action was to centralize the thought leadership and get some process control. There were uh, literally amongst a portfolio of 125 million square feet in 4,000 locations, there were no dedicated real estate transaction management people anywhere. So, uh, you know, it was, it was bring some expertise into the operational excellence teams. Uh, regional service provider relationships. Old Tyco was the Wild West. You know, every local manager did their own broker relationship. Some of them didn't bother, just did the deals themselves because they know how to buy a house. Why don't I know how to buy a plant? Um, uh, built the virtual premise database. You know, you start finding 4,000 locations. You need a place to keep track of the information and obviously improve the process controls to match the corporate governance philosophies of the company. Uh, from 2004 to 2006, so we started with 125 million square feet of space, 4,000 locations, ended 2006 with 2,900 locations and 93 million square feet. That's a 32 million square foot reduction through, uh, well, you go efficiency and or disposition. About 10 million square feet of that was through divestiture of our Tyco Plastics and Adhesives Group and uh, a few other sundry businesses. But 
you know, you're left with a balance there of 22 million square feet strictly on efficiency. Let's 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 do things different. Footprint rationalization, distribution network rationalization. Um, got the real estate group engaged in that strategic planning process up front to, you know, we're not doing anything new. We're not doing any acquisitions. This is all about fixing the platform that we have. Uh, focused on eliminating that square, f- that surplus, and uh, uh, the the main aspect of that was site consolidations. I can't tell you how many three to one, four to one, five to one projects I've worked on in the past several years. Uh, uh, amidst this, our manufacturing base was migrating to China. Most often, you know, we have locations in all of the LLC sort of traditional companies: Brazil, Russia, India, China, uh, Eastern Europe. Uh, so we were actively involved in that process. And then uh, uh, for our office-based portfolios, we were rationalizing the office portfolio with co-locations and instituting good, you know, Cornet best practice kind of stuff for space standards and, and uh, the like. Uh, distribution warehouse footprint was optimized uh, basically on the basis of trans. Uh, uh, transportation cost, key location consolidation, getting down from 12 U.S. distribution centers per business to three or four or two, depending on the nature of the product and the time shipping requirements. So you go from scandal to thinking you have everything kind of at least back on the right path, and then the CEO and the board come and say, you know, we're really good. We're doing good. We're back on track. But to really unlock the value of this company, we've got to kind of abandon that conglomerate approach and be a little more industry-specific to appeal to the investor population. You know, folks that want to invest in a healthcare business aren't really comfortable with the baggage that comes from electronics or understanding the engineered and products, products and services portfolio. So uh, from an investor standpoint, and also from a speed to market and agility standpoint, the decision was made to split Tyco into three companies. That would be, well, setting the Tyco Electronics and Tyco Healthcare pieces of the portfolio off into their own freestanding companies, own board of directors, uh, completely uh, separate, and keeping the uh, fire and security and engineered products and services groups together. Uh, reason that it didn't wind up to four is there actually are synergies between the fire and security and engineered products and services groups. Uh, uh, Tyco Fire and Building Projects is a, a products is an engineered products and services group. We make the pipe that goes to the sprinkler that goes to so you know it's just a, a horizontal integration strategy. Uh, but the thought is that the business is separate. We're better able to get back into that strategic acquisition and alliance play that we have avoided since the crisis, uh, back into better resource allocation and ramping up their own R&D without corporate overhead and people, too many decision makers sticking their nose into where, it, where the money needs to go. Uh, next. So what does it mean to go through the separation process like this? Well, the breakup carved out uh, about 900 locations and 50 million square feet of space. That uh, required the necessary title work and evaluation of the legal lease entity structure of uh, another 700 plus locations. Um, to do that, well, to lay the framework against the old company, at this point we still had over 2,000 active legal entities under the Tyco umbrella. So when you're going through these 1,000 leases, you're referencing 2,000 active legal entities to try and rationalize who goes where in this process. And 
to uh, do that all while maintaining your basis as a Bermuda company and maintaining your basis as a uh, Schaffhausen Switzerland-based European entity and such. we did co-locations in the past. Uh, there were about a hundred of them, uh, where the, each of these groups were, you know, physically in large scale. You know, not just one person here and there sitting in an office, a sales guy. We're real together co-locations. Uh, Twenty-five of them had absolutely no demising walls, no no presence whatsoever. So out of that becomes twenty-five little micro wars about who stays, who goes. You know, do you build walls? Do you do you move? And then we opened seven new corporate headquarters, 150 square feet of uh, 150,000 square feet of new offices. That's uh, uh, expanding the corporate headquarters presence for electronics and healthcare, uh, duplicating our board spaces in Bermuda, uh, recreating our financial centers for each of the companies in uh, Schaffhausen, Switzerland, Luxembourg, uh, Singapore, places like that. So, June 29th, 2007, 18 months of hell later, uh, we actually split into the three uh, separate companies. There's uh, Covidian is the only one that completely abandoned the Tyco name. That's uh, uh, the legacy Tyco Healthcare. Slide. Who's new Tyco now? Operating in five business segments, ADT Worldwide has good brand recognition in the security business, safety products, electrical and metal products, fire protection, flow control. Uh, Slide here. Uh, Most of you will recognize a lot of these brands. You'll see it across the uh, real estate industry, obviously ADT and Sensormatic in that uh, security space. Uh, Simplex Grinnell and Wormald, look on your fire extinguishers and your sprinklers above your, uh, your desk and you'll find them there. Uh, flow control in the water, industrial valve space for the petroleum industry, the marine industry, the nuclear industry. Uh, safety products, uh, Scott, they do the air packs that all the firemen wear. You know, they got the, the big mask and the, uh, Grinnell and Ansel are uh, sprinkler-based companies and uh, fire protection companies. And then electrical and metal products, which, again, in this area, most of you, I think, would know. Uh, Allied Tube and Conduit is headquartered in Harvey, Illinois. It has about a million square feet of space down there. It's the largest U.S. producer of steel pipe. Uh, when I talked about, you know, how do you survive a scandal, this is how you survive a scandal. you got good businesses underneath there. You know, all of these brands are global leaders or U.S. leaders in, in the businesses they're in. Uh, I had a tough time going, you know, all right, we're going through this separation and we were this big company and huge portfolio and huge challenge. And, you know, now I'm going to be managing 60, you know, uh, 50% of the space I was managing, 60 or 70% of the number of locations. And I sort of started to realize that, you know, a $20 billion new Tyco entity is still a pretty substantial group. And we, we talked about what does that mean? So Tyco on a revenue basis, New Tyco on a revenue basis is equivalent to Apple and Google combined. It's equivalent to Harley Davidson and Anheuser Busch combined, which is, by the way, the only time I recommend combining motorcycles and, you know, not not a good plan there. Or Tyco is equal to Starbucks three times over. So, uh, you know, that helped me at least get excited about the challenges ahead versus sort of lamenting the, the loss of some of that stuff. Wanted to look at the real estate rationalization challenge 
from just a new Tyco perspective. So to go back to 2003 and say, okay, just on the book of business that's going forward with us, where did we start? Where are we headed? Uh, started almost 53 million square feet of space, almost 3,000 locations. Uh, since that time, we've eliminated uh, just under 800 uh, facilities, over 14 million square feet of space, while simultaneously growing the revenue of the company. Uh, what that portfolio looks like today, this is the portfolio split up amidst the uh, companies. Significant from a standpoint of it, it kind of highlights we're still very different businesses under the umbrella from a real estate alignment perspective. The uh, From a square footage perspective, the flow control, temp, and TSP portfolios, that's our manufacturing groups, the guys that really make stuff and plants, uh, really dominate from a total square footage standpoint. But then you look from a number of location standpoint, ADT worldwide, almost 900 locations, you know, a lot of sales office, a lot of presence have to be close to the customer, a lot of monitoring senators. Um, the fire business, same thing, you know, out there has to be in, has to be in touch. So uh, kind of two different aspects of the portfolio, a large number of, a, a portfolio with a large number of offices that are relatively small and a large number of heavy hitting big manufacturing and distribution uh, locations. New Tyco strategy. I put this up. Uh, you know, we talk about trying to get a seat at the table and wanting to be appreciated at the CEO level and the, the directors and engaged in the strategy. This is right off of the this slide I stole out of Ed Breen's investor chart, uh, investor roadshow presentation, and it's uh, you know his his version of New Tyco strategy. So great talent. I hope I'm part of that mix. Uh, accelerate organic growth. We really want to, you know, grow the business organically. We're not going back to that aggressive acquisition strategy. Uh, you know, third bullet down. Uh, you know, number three on his list of priorities: drive operational excellence and restructuring opportunities. And that's, you know, all sit strongly in the real estate field. So it's a good, good feeling there. Um, and obviously, taking those goals out there, you know, manage the portfolio, improve margin, increase return on invested capital, all things that we touch in the real estate world every day. So uh, we really feel uh, fortunate to have a leadership group that uh, appreciates that uh, investment. Strategies and goals going forward. I'm on the hook for another 2 million square feet of real estate reduction over the next year. Uh, trying to translate that into a $20 million net reduction in our operating run rate for real estate and uh, uh, bring back another $15 million of uh, free cash out of uh, property sales. Uh, streamline and simplify the process. Uh, we have a lot of rigor put into our corporate governance and process there, and we've got to make it easier and simpler for people to do the right thing within our complex organization. Uh, so that's, that's, that's key to what we're working on. Uh, still have a long way to go on data capture. You know, fortunately we know where every place is now, but it'd be nice to know what the light bill cost them and all those places. Uh, and to let that data drive some better strategic analysis across our portfolio. And certainly support the businesses as they are, again, growing organically and also back in the M&A game. So we need to kind of go back and figure out how we do the, the M&A activity effectively as, a, as part of the new company. Lessons learned from a portfolio transformation standpoint. First, I'd echo 99% of what Steve's 
experiences have been a little unique piece here. Um, holding company, you know, uh, Cornet. You always hear align your real estate strategy with your business objectives. Well, you know, Tyco is that one set of business extra- or twelve or fifteen or eighteen like we used to be, and they are different. We have you know very wide ranging different usage types, uh, uh, different industry segments, different strategies. So uh, out of that. The takeaway is, you know, I can leverage process consistency across that full portfolio. I can leverage the size of our spend across a, a lot of sourced activities in the real estate space. But really, the the day to day strategy needs to adjust to the individual businesses, and you need to be in touch with the individual businesses to be there. Uh, Co location strategies are obvious. You know, you, you you get that address list together, and you go, "Wow, there's 27 Tyco locations in metropolitan Chicago, and northern Illinois, and Indiana, and uh, Wisconsin." And you go, "All right, well, maybe it can't be one, but it sure could be five. But then you start drilling down into it, and you go, "All right, well, you know, you got B class office, you got C class flex space, you got you know uh, distribution warehouse, you got plants." Uh, you got dirty old businesses, you know, that are still doing business in the manufacturing kind of environment that uh, you know folks worked in in the twenties. You've got clean room businesses like the components electronics business where they're uh, you know clean and high tech. So uh, co-location strategies are obvious, but they didn't often work. You know, unless you were under the same business umbrella. You know, if you put a twenty thousand square foot warehouse together with another business's twenty thousand square foot warehouse, you typically get a forty thousand square foot warehouse. You know, unless you're going to really go after the operational synergies that are underneath the business, the real estate aspect doesn't deliver enough to overcome that. Uh, you know, even when they're there, you're going to hit some serious obstacles. You know, union facilities, non-union facilities, all sorts of uh, uh, fun different uh, objectives. Uh, move to be proactive up front. You know, governance, approvals, and process is great, and we all fall back to it. You know, hey, you're doing something in real estate, come call us. But the the sooner you get out in the field and walk that road with the folks, the better off your life will be. If you can, if you can get from, show me what you did and let me tell you what you did wrong, to tell me what you need and let's figure out how to get there together. The better off your life will be. Uh, data, think long term. You know, when you don't have an address list, you think, gee, all I really want is an address list and square footage and when my leases expire. But you know, long term. Uh, you're going to want to know more than just it's a manufacturing facility. You're going to want to know that it's a manufacturing facility of 150,000 feet that has 40,000 square feet of distribution space, 12,000 square feet of office space made up of you know 60 offices and 120 uh, open workstations and just get that data set up front. Don't worry about not having it for every location. You know, you're going to touch these things over the next five years. And if you get it incrementally five years from now, you'll be great. So don't settle for, I'm never going to get all of that data today. Set it up to be incrementally going long, long term. Uh, the other, let your service providers inside the business with you. This is my commercial for my service provider friends. Um, we adjusted our strategy according to the culture under each of the business umbrellas. Uh, we were imminently more successful in places where you know, our, our typical process is we do a quarterly review with a, a CFO, VP of finance level individual in each of our 
businesses regionally. Uh, we sit down, we look out over the next 24 months of real estate activity, talk about their business strategy, make sure we're aligned, make sure we know what's going on, see what, see how we can help. Um, we were imminently more successful in the end result of that process when you bring the service providers in the room with you and let them participate in that discussion directly instead of having that discussion with the real estate team, talking to senior management, turning around and calling your service provider and trying to translate it. You know, you'll all go a lot farther if you just get over the humps, get in the room, work it out. Next. Lessons learned from the separation project. Um, set up your separation teams early and function as third parties early. Uh, uh, you know, my, my father told me, you know, tall fences make good neighbors, and it really proved out true here. Um, you know, you're one big happy family at, at the start, but pretty soon, you know, people's sub agendas start coming out in the process. Somebody's going to be the new real estate director or the new company and has a different spin on how they want to run things. And, you know, you're, you're sorting all these issues out on the, on the fly. And the sooner you identify what those issues are, get them all out on the table, start setting yourself up. Great. Yes. You're running Tyco Electronics' real estate portfolio and 18 months from now you can do it any way you want to. So We've got that established, so now what? What does that mean for us getting over to these, these goals? Um, knowledge transfer, critical to everybody's success. I didn't realize how much, you know, we're, we're a real lean team, which means when you're going to separate into three, you're going to lose functionality and knowledge amongst your team. Uh, best example, you know, everybody relied on our Tyco's energy guy. You know, anytime you had an energy question, we had this great electrical engineer, PhD guy who would just parachute in and solve your energy problems. He negotiated all of our energy spend. If you had, you know, efficiency questions on the manufacturing thing, you could do all that. Well, only one of these three companies got them. So then what? You know, now what do you do? So while you've got that window, everybody's together, you've got to identify who those people are and set up that knowledge transfer process to start. Otherwise, you're going to be out there searching, hiring, and paying for talent that you haven't met yet after the fact. Uh, get yourself a good lawyer. Ain't that the truth? Um, in that process, like I said, we're sorting out 2,000 legal entities, um, you know, paper alone could have just overwhelmed us. And it, it hurts to write a big check on the legal bill, but get yourself a couple of legal good firms and it's money well spent. Uh, take advantage of the data collection efforts. You know, in, in retrospect, you're, you go into that process and you're thinking, how do are we efficient in making this separation project work? How do we keep the minimum amount of work necessary for the separation project? So one of the things that come up is, well, which locations are material to the separation? You know, is it the manufacturing footprint? Is it every location? Is it just locations that are more than 50,000 feet big? Is it just locations that your spend is more than a million dollars a year in? You know, what's the definition of material? Um, if you're data challenged, like we were and continue to be, strategy here is set that bar low. It's going to make the separation project more work, but you have more work and access to teams and resources during that project than you're going to have in your daily run rate. So if you set the project up where you're, you do more work in the separation project while you have the resources, you'll get better data out of it. You know, So we ran title on uh, 
you know, more locations than we needed to. We did more lease analysis than we needed to. We did more um, uh, translations of international leases uh, than we maybe could have minimized. And that was strategically thought because we need the data up front. And so let's make sure we have that way. We're sure we have everything we need. And in the future, everybody's got the data to use. Uh, lastly, don't forget your other job. You know, it's real easy to get caught up in any of the big projects. You know, you got a headquarters move, you got a, a large M and A activity, you got a separation project. It's really easy to get caught up in. Hey, this is what I'm graded on. This is what people are looking at. This is high visibility. But uh, you really got to stay focused and and uh, rebucket, reallocate your time. That you know, Monday Mondays were separation day, and Tuesdays I had to get back to doing my old job, you know, my regular job, managing the portfolio, making sure I stayed in contact with the the business leaders about their current strategy and all the things they were feeling about the separation, uh, not losing traction with those relationships that uh, you had worked hard on to build and would have been ashamed to just drop amidst the madness of the separation. I put this up here. You know, we got our, our students over here, and I've been carrying this around for, for a long time. And it's just uh, uh, partly because of the places I've worked. I've just started to live in that space of change and transformation. But I've kept this in my bottom drawer for years, and it's one of my favorites. It's uh, John Cotter's article. Uh, that was in the Harvard Business Review years ago, uh, Why Transformation Efforts Fail. And he gives eight steps for organizational transformation. Won't go through them all. Uh, a couple that, that really you know come forth in this process here. Uh, empowers others to act. You've got to recognize you've got good talent out there or you've got developing talent out there and let, let them go do it. And uh, the bullet point plan for and create short-term wins. You know, you, it can't be an all-or-nothing, 18-month-long project. You've got to look for milestones to celebrate along the way, and uh, and build on from a, from an initiative standpoint. So, uh, I think that's it uh, from a, from a change standpoint. If you can get yourself a copy of that article, it's good to uh, good to, good to hold on to. Thank you. Was that it? Great job, Bill. Thank you. Bill, thanks a lot. That was uh, great insight. I appreciate it. Now, uh, I just want to thank the panel one last time. They were great, shared a lot of super ideas. So thank you all again for coming and sharing this afternoon. Thank you all. We'll see you on the 11th of October. Uh, see you at the golf next week. And don't forget to fill out the uh, questionnaires. And Kelly Benedict is telling me to remember the 18th for our learning session. Uh, we'd love to have you join us. Thank you. Thank you.